I looked this morning, I thought, where are we up to? We're up to sermon number 14 out of 31 as I work our way through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's our normal routine here to work our way through books of the Bible from start to finish for a couple of reasons. One, because it is the way we should read the Bible, to read things in their context and understand how things fit together. But secondly, it prevents me on just preaching on hobby horses every single week because I don't get to choose the content. I, the content will be defined by what comes next. So with that in mind, let's come before God, recognising that it is his word and we want him to speak through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, you are awesome and majestic. The whole earth is full of your glory. As we behold what we can be known, we are lost for words. We are at awe. We are in total, complete awe of who you are. We thank you that you have made yourself known to mankind and provided the way by which we can be restored to you because we were lost. We were hopelessly lost not honouring you as God or giving you thanks. We thank you that Jesus has done the work of reconciliation by his death and resurrection. We thank you that through your word, your written word, you speak to us today, you reveal Christ to us today. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who takes that word, brings conviction of sin, enables us to walk in faithfulness, and helps us to be transformed, to be more like your son. We pray that all of those things and more would take place amongst your people this morning, including this one standing up the front. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I was doing helping out at Bunkers Hill State School, which is where our eldest daughter goes, for a chaplaincy barbecue to raise money for their chaplain who's there currently two days a week. The school has money to provide for one day and through charitable donations supports Amber in her role for a second day. During that time, and it was the first ever time I've done something to volunteer at that particular school, it was right towards the end of the day. It was the school athletics carnival. There was a kid who comes up and he would like a drink. It was the last drink we had left. And I said, that'll be $2, please. And he doesn't have $2. He's a cute little kid and he's a sad-looking little kid. Now, here I am in an ethical dilemma. It's the first time I've volunteered at the school, first time I've done something in support of the, the role of chaplaincy in the school and it's a fundraiser and kind of fundraisers, the kind of the purpose of them is, is to raise funds. But then I think, I could easily, I can afford $2 to get this kid a drink. But then there's kind of like an idea of favouritism. Or then there's the other idea of what happened if the parents haven't given their child any money because they don't want their kids to have stuff like that and then he gets a drink, goes home and then the parents complain to school, which idiot gave my kid a can of soft drink? So I, I just disappointed the child. He knew where to go to get the drinks and the sausages. He knew exactly where the place was but in light of the mission objective of what was happening there, 
Unfortunately, that just wasn't his turn. Now, you might wonder, what on earth has that got to do with the passage we're looking this morning? It's not like Jesus is running a a ministry fundraiser barbecue somewhere. As we get to chapter 7, verse 24, it marks a significant tangent in Jesus' ministry where he goes outside of the land of Jewish land, heads off into Gentile territory. But one thing that we'll see as we look at Jesus over these next couple of weeks in Gentile territory, the way in which he interacts and the things in which he does are very much defined by, in terms of the nature of his mission, of what he came to do. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you realise Gentiles is just a term that gets used for those who are not of Israelite descent. Those who, who would have been looked down upon by a number of the Jews as being unclean, outsiders, outside of the plan of God, they may even thought. But regardless of what particularly the Jewish leaders thought of the Gentiles in that time, how does God view them? Today we've got two separate little events that are described which not only gives us a glimpse and an answer to that question of what is Jesus' view but also opens our eyes to see the answer of how do they and where do they fit into the overall plan of God. So we're going to look at understanding Jesus' mission in 24 to 30, the mission that was foretold in verses 31 to 37 and wrapping up with treasure beyond the boundaries. So looking first at understanding Jesus' mission. Now last week as we looked at the first part of chapter 7, we noticed that first century Judaism had come to a point where it was more about the traditions of the elders than it was about upholding the definite commands of God. In particular, it began with a question directed towards Jesus' disciples. Why is it that they don't ritually and ceremoniously cleanse their hands before they eat? Why don't they wash their their pots and their cups? And we saw that the things that they were picking on them about were not things that Jesus commanded anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, Jesus rebuked them saying, they reject what God has commanded... They put that out of sight in order to set up and adhere to the traditions of their elders, these man-made traditions, which would have shocked them to hear Jesus say that of them. But he shocked them even further by saying that nothing that going into a person can defile them, but rather the heart, what comes from inside, is what makes a person unclean before God. You see, those food laws, they were a visual reminder that all of us are defiled and unclean before God and we need a cleansing which comes from him. It's not the food that defiled them. Rather, we have hearts that were defiled. And so in that... As Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, he makes it clear that all food Jesus was declaring clean. 
So from going from saying that no food was unclean, now we see Jesus going out amongst the people that would have been considered and declared to be unclean. While it's not said within any of these verses, it would probably be equally fitting for Mark to put a narrative in here to say, and thus Jesus showed that no people groups were by nature unclean either. Jesus heads into Gentile land, specifically the region of Tyre and Sidon. You see there up the north western coast and that particular map, the green shading is reflective of the area which was a, um, the Jewish area and anything outside that would be the Gentile area. But why go to those places? I mean, it's, it is modern day Lebanon if you like to think of it in terms of modern, more familiar localities. Has he gone there just to, to take a break to get away from the, the questions and the complaints of the Jewish leadership? Has he taken some time away from the crowds to spend some focused time with the disciples? Has he got an intent to, to show his disciples and give them a, a bigger picture of the greater mission of God and how far it reaches? The text doesn't answer that question specifically. But where he has gone is not only just a Gentile region, Tyre comes with a degree of history as well. During the Maccabean Wars, Tyre fought against the Jews. When Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about the histories of those wars, speaking of Tyre, he says, they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. And it was the people of Tyre who brought Baal worship into the Israelite communities. They were not just Gentiles, they were particularly despised and pagan Gentiles. So when Jesus arrives, he enters into a house and once again he doesn't want people to know. We've seen time and time again he likes to be separate and away from the crowds. But even in Gentile lands, it says, he simply could not go unnoticed. The word has spread far and wide about this Jesus, about the things that he has done, about the things that he has said. Wherever he went, he couldn't go unnoticed. But the focus comes in on one particular lady whose daughter had an unclean spirit. And much like the synagogue leader Jairus back in chapter 5, she falls at the feet of Jesus with a desperate and urgent request. But unlike Jairus, she had nothing within herself that made her feel worthy of Jesus doing something for her. I mean, Jairus, he was a synagogue ruler. Here she is described as a woman, not favourably looked upon in the culture at the time, a Gentile, and not just any Gentile, a Syrophoenician Gentile. And it says she was begging, I think is the way that ESV put it, 
Other translations would say she kept asking. There is a repetitiveness in her request. She was like she asked and asked and asked. She was so desperate, she kept asking. She wanted desperately. Can you cast out this demon from my child? Because she knows. She knows enough of Jesus to know that he can. We know she knows enough of Jesus that he has done this for others before. And so she persists with her request. And clearly she doesn't think that her status as a Gentile woman is a hindrance to Jesus honouring that request. But as Jesus replies, you can see there's no hesitation about her worthiness His only hesitation is with regards to priority of his mission. He said to her, let the children be fed first, so that's his number one priority, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus doesn't say, no way, Jose, I'm not doing anything for a Gentile. Not that Jose is a common Gentile, unless you go to Spanish lands. But he says, my mission priority, the reason I came was for the lost sheep of Israel. Using the language then of taking the children, that is the nation of Israel's bread, so it's not right to do that and throw it to the dogs. Now this is where we kind of need to step back a little bit and think, hang on, this Honourable, holy Jesus. Did he just call this woman a dog? I thought if we're trying to get the impression he said that no foods were unclean and now he's going to amongst the people who were considered unclean. If he's trying to show something that he doesn't think these people are unclean, surely calling them a dog is not a good way to go about it. Especially when in the culture of the time, dogs weren't these cute cuddly pets that might snuggle up on your bed on a cold night. They were dogs that roamed the streets, would eat of corpses and therefore, according to the law, be unclean. When they think of dogs, they don't get this idea of a cute and cuddly little dog with their girl inside the house who's no idea that she's up on the screen over there. Yeah, she has now. So if Jesus is really trying to juxtapose what he said about foods and now trying to speak about all people by nature, by people groups not being unclean, how on earth does it fit to call her a dog? Well, there's a couple of things we need to say to that because on the surface it seems like a pretty difficult question to answer. The first thing you might notice is there is absolutely no sign that the woman is offended by this. In fact, she uses the same word herself to describe herself and her fellow Gentiles. But secondly, something that's not so apparent to the eye is that the Greek word that they're using here for dog is not the common description of a stray dog wandering the streets feeding on corpses. It was a word that described a small dog, maybe even a puppy, 
maybe even one that might be, be actually a pet, not necessarily with the rights that the one you just saw in the photo a little while ago. As in one who's not external to the household, but one that is associated with the household. The Syrophoenician woman who's far from offended, in fact, she agrees. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Like she agrees with all of the designations. She agrees with the, the language of children being spoken of the nation of Israel. She agrees with the dogs being, being the description, describing of the Gentiles. But what's not again clear to our eye, the words that Jesus used for children is a word that is more narrow and specific for biological children. Yet the word that the woman uses when she says children is a word that can speak more broadly of anyone within the household who may not necessarily be biologically related, maybe servants or others within the household, but one who is treated in the way in which a parent would treat those who are his own. In other words, the woman understood this picture of the children of God as being something broader than just those with a heritage or a lineage to national Israel. It's a little bit similar to the words Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said to her, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. She understands that salvation comes through and from the Jews. She recognises God's blessings to his, to his biological children, to the nation of Israel. But he also recognises that he has a children that go beyond the boundaries of national Israel. Or you could say it very simply, this Gentile woman that people would have looked down upon understands more clearly than the Jewish leaders the nature of the mission of Jesus. She understands what Paul later expressed, the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Not only is she the first person to understand clearly Jesus' mission, she's also the first person in the gospels to correctly understand a parable of Jesus speaking of the dogs and the children. And I think because of this, Jesus, who was initially a little bit reluctant to engage, when he sees this degree of faith, says, go, your request has been answered. And she goes home and finds that her daughter has indeed been made well. Certainly not the only time that Jesus is impressed with the faith of a Gentile. There are a number of occasions we see that in the Gospels. Then we have the mission foretold in verses 31 to 37. Again, we're in Gentile territory, but geographically distant from the last time. We were in the, the northwest, we're now down in the southeast, the area called the Decapolis, which basically just means the ten cities. It was the same place back in chapter 5, verse 20. Remember the demoniac? from the Gerasenes who had the legion of demons that were cast out. Afterwards, 
he went and bore witness to Jesus in the Decapolis. So they've certainly heard about him from their first, potentially their first ever missionary. Mark's the only one who records this event where one who is deaf and speech impaired is brought to Jesus. Much like his time in Tyre, Jesus is trying to avoid the crowds, avoid the attention, so he actually takes this individual away from the crowd in order to heal him. Takes him aside, puts his fingers in his ears and then touches his tongue with spittle. Now the Gentiles, they were not unfamiliar with unorthodox methods. The idea of putting different things on body parts as a way of trying to heal things, that was, that was common territory for them. But Jesus wasn't saying, guys, I've got one you haven't tried before, you should try spit. Spit is awesome. Jesus is making it very clear. It's not just a new method they haven't discovered. It says, Jesus looks up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released or unchained, literally it was, and he spoke plainly. He wanted to be very clear to that man that it wasn't the spit, wasn't the fingers in the ears that made him well. He looked up to heaven. He wanted to know that that came from the very power of God at work in his life. Because remember, at that time, he's, he's deaf, so telling him may not have been the way to communicate at that time. He visually communicated where this power was coming from. Now, we've come a long way in Mark's Gospel and we've seen lots of people healed. We've seen lots of people with demons cast out and you think, do we really need some more verses of another one? It's, in light of all that's already happened, it's just like another one. There's been enough to get the impression, yeah, Jesus has all power and authority to do these things. And have a look at the reaction of the people. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's almost like echoes going back to the creation narrative in Genesis 1.31 when it says, and he looked upon all that he made and it was good. And here on the lips of these Gentiles, they say, all that he has done, he has done all things well. Whether they meant to or not, probably not. There's glimpses of a new creation coming into pass. But why would this event be recorded? We've seen thousands of people healed. Demons cast out. And I think to the person who's keen has an eye in scripture will see that this says something about the very nature of Jesus and his mission. You see, these words that's translated speech impediment that affected this man occurs only one other time in the entirety of the scriptures. It's in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, 
when Isaiah spoke and prophesied about the desert areas of Lebanon, that they would see the glory and majesty of God. He's already been ministering in those areas of Lebanon, in Tyre, with a Syrophoenician woman. Now he's off into the other lands, into the Decapolis. Then in Isaiah, when he's describing those days when they would see his glory and majesty come in verses 5 to 6, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute, that's the the same Greek word used in Mark 7 here, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, the revealing of the glory and majesty of God had been foretold. It was coming to the desert lands of Lebanon. And what we're seeing in these verses that we're looking at this morning is the first fruits of what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. The Syrophoenician woman, she understood it. This man is on the tail end experiencing it coming into place. All of this taking place in areas where the traditions of the elders would have said unclean, unworthy, defiled. There's a treasure beyond the perceived boundaries. Even Jesus' own words indicated from the beginning that his mission went beyond just the children of Israel. He said, let it first to feed the children. Implies there would be others who would follow, others to be fed, others to be brought in to the household, to the family. After Jesus' death, resurrection and before he ascended, he articulated that as clear as you could possibly want. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, them, Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. There is no people group that is unclean, unworthy, outside the limits of the grace and blessing of God. And I'm not just talking about racial categories either, like this ethnic group or this ethnic group. There is no grouping of people with their political stance, whatever agenda they might be, there is no group of people who are by nature off limits to experiencing the grace and blessing of God. It's the very heart of God to bring the joy of salvation to all people. He wants your neighbours. He wants your colleagues. He wants those you go to university to to see the glory and majesty of God. How did that happen? Well, Jesus and the apostles after him went to the people. They didn't put on a, a great rousing event in Jerusalem in the hope that people would turn up and come to faith in Christ. Minds of the language of Romans 10. 
How? How will they place their trust in him unless somebody goes to them? Unless someone declares it to them? We don't even need to ask the question, has God got a heart for the people in my proximity? We know he does. He's declared it to be true. Therefore, we can go out because he has a heart for all nations, for all people groups. He's entrusted us with the message and yet we have the promise that he goes with us and that it is he himself who makes his appeal through us. A couple of weeks we had a missionary family, David and Taryn Price, sharing of the mission work they've been doing in Niger. And I know a number of you were encouraged when you hear of stories about how people came from a certain background, came to, to faith in Christ. Now they're using the gifts which God has given to minister to others. It delights our heart when we hear stories like that. But how much more would it spur us on to see that happening, not just on somewhere else on the other side of the world, but to see on a Sunday morning that we see some of the new children who have just recently come to faith in Christ, gathered together with the rest of the family because someone has taken the good news of Jesus to them. Eastgate's mission statement says to to know the word, to live the word, to proclaim the word for the glory of the name. And I can guarantee you, if we wholeheartedly believe that and wholeheartedly live in accordance with that, we would see people come to faith in Christ. And we would have a desire to see people come to know Christ, to live Christ, to proclaim him for the glory of the name. We would see God's family grow. He has a people in this city. He has a people in your suburb. He has a people at your workplace. He has a people at your uni. If I was to tell you that somewhere in your neighbourhood someone has hidden one million dollars, go and find it, I guarantee you would search pretty diligently. You'd be up all night with your shovel digging, even in these cold Toowoomba nights, not giving up till you find it. And yet God has a children who are his, who he has called before the foundation of the world, who are in your proximity, who are yet to be brought in, who are even more valuable than the million dollars you could find hidden under the log in somebody's backyard. If the value is higher, and it is, so my and our zeal to seek, find, proclaim the good news of the gospel within our context, uh, should drive us more and more each day. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks that there is no individual or people group that are so defiled that they are outside of your grace and your mercy. Because I was one by all analysis of behaviour and attitude 
who should have been totally unworthy. We thank you that you are in the business of making things new. You don't need to make someone almost there in order to bring them to salvation. We can have the most shameful past. We can have the most shameful behaviour even right this day. Yet if the gospel makes a call to our heart to turn from our sin, to turn to the living God who has given us everything in this world, to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, that he is our rightful king and ruler to whom we belong, that we can be called his children. Lord, if your spirit would be to so work in anyone to desire that, may they call upon you in prayer and simply say, I need you. Forgive me for all the times that I've not honoured you as you as you are worthy of. I've lived as though you don't exist. I've, I've denied the creator who has given me my life and everything. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross who took my punishment that I so greatly deserved. And thank you that you offer newness of life through the resurrected Christ to all who place their trust in him. In whose name we pray, amen. For those who like to read in advance, we're looking at chapter 8, verses 1 to 21 next week.